You may remember that last week we had hoped to discuss Ukraine on a foreign affair, our regular foreign policy chat, but we simply ran out of time. There was so much to talk about. The war in Ukraine has very much dropped out of the headlines since October the 7th, which we're well aware of. So as promised, let's pick up now the discussion we wanted to have on the stalemate that's apparently emerged between Ukraine and Russia. At least that's according to Ukraine's Commander-in-Chief General Valery Zalushny. Uh, Both his leader, Volodymyr Zelensky, and Vladimir Putin have rejected this characterisation. What are the facts, shall we say? I'm delighted to welcome back Frank Ledwidge, a former officer in the British military, a barrister, author and respected analyst of conflicts. Hello again, Frank. Good morning, Geraldine. Firstly, uh, are they in a stalemate or not? Who should we be listening to here? Over the last four months, the Ukrainians have not achieved their objectives. In normal circumstances, we would call such an offensive which would fail to meet objectives a defeat. Nobody has mentioned that, but that's what it amounts to. Now, that's at the operational level. So that's at the level of the tanks, guns, divisions, and what have you. If you take a step back and look at the map and the significance of the map to the politics, the front lines and the dividing line have not changed. And the Russians still hold the land they held. They're likely to do so. President, or rather, General Zaluzhny, in his recent statements, said as much. Now, whether you call that a stalemate or not, it looks like it to me. And uh, there are, I think, very serious consequences or significant consequences to this failure. Uh, Right, and I'll come back to those. So I thought I'd heard 30 Ks had been advanced. (laughs) You know, um, I I don't know whether that, uh, like the definition of stalemate, what does it mean in this case? What does it mean in a war zone to have something that can be dubbed stalemate? Well, first of all, in terms of the sort of practical level, which is the, how many kilometres of arterial there, the Ukrainians say they've bound 17 kilometres in the south and they've been a few kilometres elsewhere. And the, the, the upshot is they gained something sure, something slack of 150 square kilometres. The Russians took more than that in their offensives over the last few months. It's a net loss, actually. But um, what does this stalemate mean? It means that neither side is likely to get a decisive edge on the other. To be fair to the Ukrainians, they did their best. They were, in some ways, in some ways, uh, pressured into this, but in in other ways, it was was their choice. There was a reasonable, perhaps not high, justified by an objective assessment of the facts, and very few of us were capable of that at the time, but the reasonable expectation they may gain their initial main objective, which was the town of Tokmak. It's about 50 kilometers behind the front lines. Uh, and I think many of us thought they were likely to do that. I, I certainly did, but I didn't think they'd get any further. It doesn't matter what any of us thought. The point is that neither side is able to at the moment or is likely to advance for the next few months or make any significant attempt to do so. I would suggest that the Ukrainians do not have the resources to make a similar push next year, but perhaps we could get on to that. Would it be fair to say that despite the Russian military initially being far less effective than was expected, that they did learn and adapt as they are wont to do in warfare, especially in these defensive moves that they made, the way they intensively mined their positions as they retreated, really seems to have affected uh, the Ukrainians' ability to advance? That's exactly right, and it's a great point. First of all, the Russians... and I, 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 Many of us said this at the start, and many of us continue to say, learn from their mistakes. 
I was talking to a Lithuanian, senior Lithuanian officer. Lithuanians have, have no love for the Russians, um, but they do respect them. And so the Finns and what both of those nations officers would say is that uh, they are not stupid. And what's happened over the last 18 months at the senior command level is they've tried commander after commander, they've fired this person, dismissed that person, disappeared the other. Now they've got to a point where in the South they have an excellent commander, or rather a commander respected by both sides. They have uh, got to a point where they've formed their military industrial capabilities to a point where next year they're likely to start outproducing what the West can supply. And of course, the, arguably, and particularly with respect to Russian military history, they have the mass necessary to sustain losses, but also to maintain their positions. What tends not to happen with the Russian army is what the theory of victory of the Ukrainians hoped for, which was a cascade breakdown and rout, essentially. Mm. Now, that's no theory of victory if you haven't the means to achieve it, and it very definitely did not and do not have that capability, the Ukrainians at the moment, to collapse the Russian army. There's very little record of that happening anyway. Uh, a respected analyst, Dara Masakot, who has apparently studied the Russian military for years at the US Defence Department, where she was, she said on a podcast I heard this week that both armies are slightly distorting their, achie- their achievements and the other side's failures. In other words, it's forms of propaganda, which of course happen in all wars. Do you yeah. think that's a fair comment? Oh, I think that's a great comment. And what we, what we can tend to hear on our side, and I'll give you a vignette in a second, is, is what the Ukrainians are doing to the Russians. So we hear all the significant successes the Ukrainians have had in terms of strikes into, and these are significant successes, by the way, strikes into Crimea, the withdrawal of the Russian Navy from Sebastopol, naval base to Russian mainland, or mainland Russian bases, rather. Uh, you know, the deep strikes by this or that weapon or this new wonder, wonder weapon or revenge weapon or whatever you want to call it that they've obtained from the Americans and the great damage it's doing and they've got here or there. What we don't hear, and this is a big, great concern to me, and this Ms. Mazikov as well, no doubt, is what the Russians are doing to the Ukrainians. So let me put it bluntly. Um, you will often hear and I will often hear on our various media outlets in the rare occasions now they speak about the Ukraine war, that the Russians have struck a target in central Ukraine, killing several children and some ruining some playgrounds or schools or what have you. Now, the likelihood is that Russians aren't so stupid as to use very expensive and manpower-intensive ballistic missile targeting systems and the missiles themselves to attack this kind of target. But the, the targets they attack are likely to be, and they are military targets, and they're doing a lot of that. And that's called the deep battle. So the deep battle for Ukraine is into Crimea. It's trying to ruin Russian supply lines. They've been quite good at that, destroying their logistics and what have you. Yes, they've been quite good at that. What you don't hear is what the Russians are doing to the Ukrainians. And it's remarkable, Geraldine, truly. When I speak to, let's call it, as I'm not allowed to call it anything else, Western sources who are high-level Western officials, they will always focus on what the Ukrainians are doing to the Russians. They, to be fair, know very little about what the Russians are doing to the Ukrainians because fair enough to them, that's not their part of their, 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 that's not their focus. When you talk to and look at Russian sources or speak of or speak to Russian sources or speak and look at uh, casualty figures and objective ones, you can get those from the US, you're seeing a very different picture from that what you're seeing from the, 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 the briefings mm. given out by UK or US or even Australian defence sources. Um, 
I mean, she did say, mind you, Dara Masakot, that the Russians are still suffering extraordinary casualty rates in the Donetsk region. And she said truly the term cannon fodder seems to be appropriate and that their chief, General Gerasimov, continually makes offensive strikes, even when she didn't judge there was much to be gained. I mean, why do this? Yes, I think the reference there is the most recent one of many is, is Avdivka, depending on who you are, uh, in uh, that, that southeast part. And that's, that's certainly been the case over the last two or three months. They're trying to capture it. But the point here is they can afford those losses. And same we had the similar, similar situation in Bakhmut earlier last year for three or four months, which we eventually took, and they'll probably take Avdivka as well. But look, the other side is this, that the Ukrainians are also taking those casualties. I remember speaking to someone in Ukraine in the springtime, who, uh, actually a politician, who quite fair enough, and I asked her if she said she'd been near Bakhmut. And I said, well, have you been to the, to the zero line? Which would, and she said, that's a one-way journey. And um, I, have, I have at least one friend who made that one-way journey and come back. Let's put it in numbers then. And these are American numbers. So the total casualty figure for this war so far, military casualty figure, and 90% military casualties, fine, uh, is 500,000 people. Right? Now, the way it's been divided up by the Americans is that the Russians have suffered sinus. I, I really hate talking about this. Each one of these people is a man or, 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 or some women. Um, you know, but so, so Russians are 100,000 killed, it boils down to, and the Ukrainians are something similar, probably slightly less, 70,000. Now, these are figures from 1914 or 1915 mm. in terms of the strike to Ukraine's um, you know, young people. And it's a kind of rate that Ukraine cannot sustain. It's the kind of rate that Russia probably can. Well, yes, it takes your breath away when you hear those, just the behaviour of the Russian military leadership towards their men and, uh, you know, the, the populace doesn't rise up. is still very hard to grasp. It just wouldn't be accepted in militaries of the West. I, I, I'm sure that's correct. Look, just we've only got a couple of minutes left. What are you hearing about the supplies of massive amounts of artillery, especially from North Korea to the Russians? Is this any sort of game changer? No, I don't believe in game change in this war, but it is significant. And it, it obviously shows the Russian Russian sort of artillery supply. But the same applies to the Ukrainians. They are relying now on, on depleting American stocks. The U.S. Army, I've heard, from the open sources, is now taking artillery rounds from its own regiments and trying to replace them with South Korean uh, ammunition. So there's trouble on both sides. The Europeans are trying to ramp up ammunition supply, which they will do. They'll succeed in that. Uh, over the next year, but I think there may be political moves before that to try and settle this. I think there's a good chance for that. The Ukrainians have fought like lions. They have won in that they've preserved their state, they've preserved their democracy, and that democracy will continue and thrive. But I think they need to start asking questions, and I do believe this is what Salihny was driving at. Either they get full commitment from the United States, which doesn't look likely, especially in current circumstances, and Europe, to continue to supply at the same rate, which isn't happening, or they, they or we bite the bullet and start to think in terms of, uh, of political realism and realising that the Ukrainians will not be able to retake the land that they have lost and to come some to sort of political deal. I think it's a fair chance of that. Either way, it's their choice, but 
for the moment, we are at a stalemate. Uh, and is there any sort of technological supply that could be made to them, to the Ukrainians, that would change things? Or are you implying not, even if it was, even no. if it was a, uh, available? No. You know, we've had Attackums, HIMARS, Attackums being a special kind of missile, HIMARS, it's the same sort of missile that's longer range, Attackums recently, uh, various sorts of cruise missiles, and of course, above all, the great tank fights and political fights, and above all of that, the F-16s, which will not be in service in any numbers or with any effect, uh, or to make any effect at all, until 2025, at the earliest, and even then. So, no, there are no game changers. This, I'm afraid, is a war of resources, and like all wars, it's a war of mass, and as national, wars of national survival tend to be. And right, right now, the Ukrainians are facing serious difficulties. Frank, um, thank you very much indeed for that very clear-eyed overview. I do appreciate it. My pleasure, Geraldine. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Frank Ledwidge, a former military intelligence officer in the, uh, in the British uh, military. ABC RN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.